Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust consume, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust consumes, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is in you, the light is in you, the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Well, I guess James knew Jesus. Because <laughs> as we dig into our passage today, you're going to see he was definitely pulling from that idea. In fact, his entire letter, he's been pulling from that idea. He's been talking to his churches that are dispersed all over the world about pastoral concerns like, show me your genuine faith by your actions. Don't just say you believe something. Even the demons know that's true and they shudder at the thought, but you must live in a way that represents what you believe. From that faith ought to come the wisdom of God. You ought to make decisions in accordance to the wisdom of God. And if you're doing that, you will actually bring peace and not conflict. Be warned. The tongue is incredibly powerful. It can shape the direction of your life. It can shape the direction of your fellow brothers and sisters around you. It can build the church up or it can destroy it. And then he says in James chapter 4, the first few verses, which is where we pick up today. By the way, that was the last few, few sermons in 30 seconds. I could have saved you a lot of time. Those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? You want something and do not have it, so you commit murder. You covet something and cannot obtain it, so you engage in disputes and conflicts. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly in order to spend it on what you ever you desire. Adulterers, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is nothing that the scripture says God yearns jealously for the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? but he gives all the more grace and therefore says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You see the connection between those two passages? I certainly do. He asks one of his rhetorical questions. Where does the conflict among you come from? Does it not come from your heart? Does it not come with, from with inside of you? Does it not come from your own desire to build your own kingdom? To pursue the things you don't have in such a way 
that you're even willing to disobey God's word to obtain it. Nobody has to confess this, but have you ever been there? That you want something so bad, you compromise what you know is right to obtain it. Maybe it's the desire to be loved by somebody. And so you compromise your choice in who that person is just to be in a relationship with somebody. Said no college student ever. I mean, seriously, I'm speaking from a little bit from experience here, okay? But like, we want things. We want to be liked. We want to be popular. We want to have enough money not to have to worry about stuff. And the desire to be liked and the desire to have a significant other is not evil. But do we want it so bad that we don't live like a Christian in order to get it? So he says, where do the conflicts come from except from within your heart? You want something and you don't have it because you did not ask God. Now, God is not a genie in a bottle. Sorry, Brittany, or whoever that is that sings that. God is not that person where you just go, hey, I'd really like a Lamborghini. That's not how God works, and that's not what that passage means, right? But if I'm asking for the thing, if I have God's heart, if I have faith in God, if I have God's wisdom because of that faith, first couple of chapters, then what am I going to ask for? Is it possible that I'm going to ask for things that God wants me to have? And if I ask God for things that He wants me to have, what do you think His answer is going to be? Have you ever thought about that? If I know what God wants me to have and I ask for it, guess what the answer is? Yes. God made us for relationship, right? He said it's not good for man to be alone. Men, it's true, right? I mean, it's not good for us to be alone. We need women in our lives to keep us in track, intact. And yes, I'm speaking from experience on that one too. It's not good for us to be alone. So then if I'm asking for a significant other, and that's what God wants, guess what? He's going to provide it. But what do we tend to do? You're not providing it when I want it. You're not giving me my answer to my question in the time frame that I prescribed for you to give it to me. He's not a genie in a bottle. I want the relationship. With, I'm going to meet them this afternoon at lunch. You're on task. That's not how it works. <laughs> you, they will arrive in your life when they're supposed to arrive in your life. It's funny how that works. And we don't get to tell God the timetable. But if our heart's in alignment with God, He'll give us the desires of our heart. The Scriptures promise that. Now, if our heart is more focused on building ourselves first on our time frame in our way, what are we going to do? We're going to cut corners to get it. Abraham. I've got lots of Old Testament Bible stories today. We won't read them all, but I'm going to tell them to you as we go through. Abraham gets promised lots of descendants, as many as the stars, God says. And at 100, he had not any yet. Now, I don't know about you in timetables. But if I'm going to be a dad, I would like to be pre-100, okay? At 100, he's been promised lots of descendants, and he doesn't have one yet. What does Abraham do? He goes and has a relationship with his wife's servant and has a kid. 
that's not the one that God had in mind in the first place. He makes his own timetable, takes his own actions to bring about the promise that God has said he'd bring about and has Ishmael. And then eventually, God fulfills the promise, and at the right young age of 100, he has Isaac. No big deal. It's a story in Scripture, except the descendants of Isaac and the descendants of Ishmael are the reason, or what are the two countries that are fighting in the Middle East every day, all the time. Because the descendants of Ishmael are Arabic. The descendants of Isaac are Jewish. Now watch CNN with a different spin. You see what I'm saying? Because Abraham said, I want it when I want it. I'm done waiting on you. I'm taking my solution in my own hands. Cain and Abel. Cain desperately wants God's approval for his sacrifice. Cain apparently is really good at agriculture and really good... No, wait. I got that backwards? Yeah. I forget. I, did, I told you I wouldn't read the story. I'm just telling you the story. One's good at agriculture. One brings an animal sacrifice. I have to go back and read it to tell you. Oops. The pastor doesn't know the story. I just get them mixed up. Cain is wanting desperately for God. I think he's the animal. I don't know. Let's do this. All right. Since I'm screwing it up, that's not good on camera and everything else. Genesis chapter 4. See, even your pastor is not perfect. You should read your Bible a lot. Uh, let's see. Oh, I was okay, I was right. Man, see, I just didn't trust my own knowledge. Abel was the keeper of sheep, Cain the tiller of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. See, I wasn't wrong. <laughs> and Abel, for his part, brought the firstlings of his flock, their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry. And his countenance fell, and the Lord said to Cain, Why are you so upset? Why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do what do no well, sin is lurking at the door. This desire is for you, but you must be a master of it. So, I won't read the whole story like I said, but Cain gets frustrated because God has no regard for his offering. Now, we can kind of read between the lines, especially about the way Cain responds to this. There must have been something going on inside of Cain's heart about trying to get God's approval and trying to earn God's approval. Or there was something not genuine in the way he was offering up his grain offering. Either way, God found no favor in it, but found favor in Abel's. Cain, being jealous and wanting that approval and that acceptance so bad, kills Abel. Murders him. And so when James says, you want things in chapter 4... How does he, what does he say? Where do these desires come from? Do they not come from your cravings, your desires that are at war within you? You want something and do not have it, so you commit murder. I think James is going, this dude Cain, that's what he did. You want it so bad, you compromise who you are, and in this extreme example, you kill the person who is your competition for the affection. And we all sit around and go, I don't murder, I'm a good Christian. <laughs> Thank you for that. But we know that Jesus said that if you hate somebody, you have committed murder with them in your heart. The line is not as simple as killing somebody, is it? 
If I hate them because they have something I want and I don't have it, what have I done anyway? I've committed murder in my heart. So he says, the things that are coming up, the things you don't have, the things that you are craving, he uses that phrase in this translation, the cravings of your heart. And then he says something very interesting. Remember, he's, remember James is talking to Christians. Do you forget that? He's writing this to churches. You don't have, so you kill. Those are some good Christians. Maybe he's exaggerating. Maybe he's talking about hate. Maybe he's talking about the conflict he's about to deal with. I don't know for sure. But these are Christians he's talking to. He says, but then he says, the cravings that are at war within you. That's an important piece of this phrase. If you belong to Jesus, you really have these two things happening inside of your heart. A desire for God and to worship God and to love God and a desire for the things of your own life and heart. Like, you know what I mean? Like the really good chocolate cake when you shouldn't have the really good chocolate cake. You know what I mean? The things that are in your heart that you want more than anything that James is describing that don't line up with what God wants is at war. Your desire for that is at war with the part of your heart that wants what God wants. If you're a Christian, that war ought to be present. Because if you're not a Christian, who's your master? Whatever your heart desires. You have no conscience about cutting ahead to get a bigger promotion or get a job or lying about a coworker so that you can get that promotion instead of them because you have no conscience about these things. You're not at war with yourself on it. If you're a Christian, you know that's wrong, but you still want the promotion. And when you lie, you feel guilty. The desires are at war. And I hope you do. The wars are the lies. The, the stuff is at, at war within you. The desires of your heart are in conflict. What are they? The part of your heart that loves God is at war with the sinful nature inside of your heart you're still with. Paul, the guy who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, says in Romans 7, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. Can we join that club? <laughs> He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, and that's how he feels about this. He planted churches all over the Mediterranean Sea, and that's how he feels about this. He's, con he's conflicted too. If there's no Holy Spirit inside of you, there's no Holy Spirit desire inside of you, so you're not at war with yourself. And unfortunately for us Christians, that war does not end until Jesus returns. And sin is abolished, and the enemy is destroyed and our nature is completely restored the way it ought to be. Verse 4, by the way, we're going to cover a big section of James today and land the plane next week. So hang on. Uh, verse 4, James gets really controversial. Adulterers, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Sounds a little bit like Matthew 16. Where did I say? Matthew 6? 19 through 24. Where you store up your treasure, there your heart will be also. You cannot serve two masters. You will serve one and love the other, or hate the other, and you will serve the other and hate the one. I just paraphrased that, but you get the idea, right? The divided heart has to choose an ultimate master. I'm going to build my own kingdom, or I'm going to sacrifice to give up God's. And he calls, 
He calls his good Christian churches, he's writing the letter to adulterers. Now, why would he call them adulterers? He's not talking about them being unfaithful in marriage. It's a spiritual metaphor to get their attention. Because God, throughout Old Testament scriptures, considers when the people of Israel chase after other gods, chase after trying to be like the other nations, the scriptures call that the nation being adultery. He calls the nation of Israel adulterers. To the point that this poor prophet named Hosea comes along, and God tells Hosea to marry a prostitute to prove his point. How do you like that commission as a prophet? <laughs> hey, go marry this woman who has been with every man in the country so that they will understand what it's like for me to be God over you. That's the metaphor. It's as if the wife, that he, the real life wife that he had to marry is the nation of Israel, and Hosea in this metaphor is God. And Hosea is faithful to her, and she is a prostitute. And so when God looks at our life and our choices, when we are not, when we are pursuing, when we're building friendship with the world, we are spiritual adulterers. When we consider the things of this world, the things of our own agenda, the things of our own life higher than God, it's the definition of idolatry and spiritual unfaithfulness. That's what James is saying. In fact, verse 6, I think that's where I am. We're still in 4-6. We're going all the way to 5-6. Are you ready? Okay. I promise I'm going to speed up in just a minute. Do you suppose that nothing the Scripture says, God yearns jealously for, jealously for the spirit that He has made to dwell in us, but He gives all the more grace and says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so there, it's not in the translation, but there could be a big fat so right there. <laughs> As if James goes, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So submit yourself therefore to God, resist the devil. <laughs> and he will, be, he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into dejection. Humble yourself before the Lord and He will exalt you. James is such an encouraging pastor. What is he? Mourn. Don't be filled with joy. What's he talking about? He says, submit yourself to God, therefore, and He will exalt you. And there was a, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the fact that God tends to like, it's hard for the, wealth, the wealthy to love God because they don't need Him because they have money. And if you have power, if you have prestige, if you have the things, that, the things of the world that He's condemning in the first part of four, or the love of the things of the world that He's condemning in part four, that's your master, that's your God. And you get all full of pride about your accomplishments your career, your bank account size, your retirement account size, the size of your house, all that stuff makes you feel like, look how good I am. And God opposes you. And he says, submit instead to God. Allow that to do that. Because why? God elevates the humble. 
The earlier passage in James, when he's talking about when he condemns those who love money, he says the poor are the ones that will be exalted and the wealthy will be brought low. That's, an, that's pretty much a, almost an exact quote of James. And so he's warning the people of his church to rely and submit themselves to God, to be humble before God, because then they will be exalted. doesn't mean you can't have possessions. It means they can't be your master. Then he says, Do not speak evil against one another. Brothers and sisters, whoever speaks evil against another or judges another speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And there is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. So who then are you to judge your neighbor? What's he saying? If you're full of pride and you're full of yourself and you think you've got it all figured out and you look at your neighbor and they're not as awesome as you and you judge them, you're equating yourself with God. Because there's only one who can judge. There's only one who is worthy to judge. And that's God. And so when you judge somebody else for their actions, when you judge somebody else for who they are, you are making, you are making it out to say to yourself, I know better than God because I am in judgment over how they live their life. Only God can do that. Only God can do that. And that's the epitome of pride, isn't it? To think you're better than everybody else. That's about as pride as pride can get. So humble yourself. Submit yourself to God, not to your own kingdom, but to God's kingdom. Not to wealth, but humble before God. Now he mentions mourning and weeping and James wants everybody to be sad. No, what he's talking about is mourning over your own pride and sin. When you let go of something, what do you have to do? You have to mourn it, right? When you make a wholesale change, when you go from one direction to another, when you move on to a new job, when you move on to a new relationship, you literally have to mourn the departure of that relationship. When a loved one passes away, we have these funerals where we weep and cry because they're no longer here. And what James is saying is, when you're turning from love of the world and friendship and enmity with God, and you're turning from that to loving God and worshiping God with your whole life, you ought to mourn the passing of your old self because it's part of the letting it go and clinging to God. And if you're attached to God's heart and you love the things that God loves and you worship God, it should make you sad and upset when you don't do what God wants you to do. Your heart ought to go, I can't believe I did that again. I hate that. I need to mourn that and put it out of my life. How does Paul say it? Die to sin, to be alive to Christ. It's the same metaphor. He's not, James is not saying you should weep all the time. He is saying you should mourn your sin when you let go of it. As part of the process of that turning and going the other way. It was an important part of you. I've said this before. Nobody goes, I hate sin. Let me go do this. Most of us sin and go, I hate that I did that. <laughs> but at the time, there was a reason we really wanted to. There was a time we really wanted to do whatever it was that was wrong. Because sin can be 
fun. In fact, the, ple- the word pleasures in here, that's what he says, right? You don't have because what, you ask, what you're really asking for stuff from God for is so that you can spend it on pleasures. The Greek is literally hedonai, as in hedonistic. It has this, that's why it comes in in verse 4 and goes adulterer, because it has a sensual dimension to it, a love or a lust for the things of this world that are pleasurable and fun. And loving that more than God is hedonism in that sense. Now, the next two sections. <laughs> I told you we're going to go fast. It's 11.45. How are we going to do 10 more? Hold another chapter, Charlie. Because the next two things are literally Old Testament parables of woe. James is in full preacher mode, calling people out, right? He is in full, you've got to make this change. You've got, to re- you've got to remove this type of attitude from the church. You've got to be intentional about your love for God and being humble and not full of who you are and what you think you are and your possessions, but instead be sacrificial, loving, submitting to God because you cannot serve two masters, Matthew 6. Amos 8, 4 through 6 says this. Hear this. This is an Old Testament woe, okay? That's why we're bringing it in here. Hear this, you that trample on the needy and bring ruin to the poor of the land, saying, when when will the new moon be over so that we may go and sell grain in the Sabbath so that we may offer wheat for sale? We will make an epith small and the shekel great and practice deceit with false balances, buying the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and selling the sweepings of the wheat the Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob. It's just four through six. I kept going. Okay. That's an Old Testament woe. Amos is a prophet. And he's like, woe to you who say these things. When will the Sabbath be over so we can earn again? We're going to go here and we're going to sell and buy and be wealthy and be awesome. That's what Amos is preaching against. You with me? When can we go in this land and sell these things? And he starts with, hear this. You trample on the poor. You put them to the end in the land. You can't wait to make more money. And you deceive them by unbalanced scales. That's what Amos is calling them out for. Fast forward. (laughs) James chapter 4. I didn't write the verses down, so I'm going to have to guess. Oh, here it is. Come now. You who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there doing business and making money. Yet you do not even know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wishes, we will live and do this or that. And it is you who boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the right thing to do and fails to do it commits sin. Do you hear the similarities? Hear this, come now. They're both setting up a preaching speech here, right? You trample, James 4. You defraud the poor. You murder. You You say you will go and make money and steal the labor from the poor. Deceive them. It's almost Amos over again. And we're writing to the church. So what is he saying? This is an oracle. This is a this is a James is known as prophet robes. 
going, you say you're going to do this and you're going to make all this money and you want to do these things and you want to pursue these things. But warn, be warned, that is not the way God would have you live. Deceiving, taking advantage, buying and selling the poor. They had slavery in those days. Taking full, taking full advantage, oppressing people. It's all pride and hubris. Then he says something at the very end of that passage when he kind of gives his little proverb at the end of the woe. He says, those who know the right thing and don't do it commit sin. We know what's right and we don't do it. We know God's... You don't really have to go, is it a sin to lie and cheat and steal? You don't need this. You know that. (laughs) Right? If not, listen to my Ten Commandments lesson. I mean, you know this stuff. In your heart, if you belong to God, you know it's the right decision or you know it's the wrong decision when we're talking about God's moral law. You know. But you don't do it anyway. And James calls that sin. So he's warning those who deceive and oppress. And he's writing it as an encouragement to those who are oppressed that that those circumstances will be flipped. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Look at chapter 5. I told you. Aha! 5, chapter 1, verse 6 through 6. Come now. Sound familiar? It's another oracle. You rich people weep and wail for the miseries that are coming to you. Your riches have rotted. Your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted. Their rust will be evidence against you. It will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up yourself for yourself treasure for the last days. Listen, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, sounds like Amos again, cry out and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous one who does not resist you. And James is a light preacher. It's a second. He, says, he starts in again with, come now, right? I want you to get this. I'm trying to get this message across. You need to hear this. Don't deceive. You have laid up treasure for yourself. That sounds like another passage I read this morning. He even uses rust and moth, have eaten and taken. It's Matthew 6. Don't store up for yourself treasures where on earth where moth and rust can destroy. Instead, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where no one can steal. And James says, you've done it. You've placed your certainty in the things of this world, and they're not going to last. They're going to be destroyed. They're going to be eaten. They're going to be moth-eaten and rusted. By the way, side no- sidebar here, gold and silver don't rust. They tarnish, but they don't rust. So when he says your gold and silver is going to rust, what does he mean? Well, the Greek for rust right there literally means poison. Not just rust. He's saying relying on wealth is like poison for your soul. It's going to eat you alive. It's going to destroy you if that's where your heart is. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Where you lay your your treasure... And by the way, and I said this this morning in traditional church, it's the opposite of what you would think. It's not where your heart is, there your treasure will be. 
The way the passage is written is where your treasure is, there your heart will follow. What does that tell us? It tells us that the act of being humble, the action of submitting, of being sacrificial, the acts of giving actually shape our heart toward generosity, not the other way around. That if we don't consider holding on to stuff in practice, what did James say in chapter 2? You say you're generous. No, that's not what he said. He said, you say you have faith, right? He might as well have said this. You say you're generous. Show me your generous, generous heart by your actions. Paraphrase. This is the same truth. Demonstrate your, the generosity that already exists in your heart because you practice generosity. But when you practice generosity, what does your heart want to do? Be more generous. Chicken, egg, how y'all doing? <laughs> right? But spiritual practices shape our hearts. The last part of the verse, verse 5, he says this, You have lived in luxury and pleasure. You've had all these possessions. You've had everything the world has offered you. You have fattened your heart in the day of slaughter. Now, day of slaughter is an Old Testament term for, guess what? Judgment day. Day of slaughter is coming. You have... What do you do with a calf before the day of slaughter? You fatten it, right? <laughs> you feed it so it'll be like plump for Thanksgiving. Big plump turkey, that's what we want. They fatten them up before they slaughter them. And in verse 5, he says, Your heart is fat before the day of judgment, before the day of slaughter. What's the warning of this, 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 this whole passage, Right? You've lived off the world. You've placed your faith in the world. You've placed your faith in your own ability and have pride. And all you've done is fatten your heart for judgment day. You're headed for slaughter. You know, James is a kind and generous pastor. You're headed for slaughter. So, be humble. So, submit yourself instead to God. Mourn your past life. Put on the new. Don't consider the things of this world to be what you're holding on to, but instead, store up for yourself treasures in heaven where you cannot be poisoned, where it will not rust, where it will not destroy you. Let's pray. God, help our hearts to hear these oracles. James is writing to a people a long ago, but the truth is still true for us today. We want to be after you. We want to worship you. We want to live in the way that you've called us to live. But we confess this morning, we mourn and we weep this morning that we do not do so. And so we ask humbly this morning for your spirit to empower us to do so. For you to be with us so that we can be with you. So that when the day of judgment comes, we won't be stacking up our resume. Instead, we will be living and hiding behind what Jesus did for us. In his precious name, amen.